Live from New York City, it's the Gary Null Show. And now, your host, Gary Null. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null. Nice to have you with us today. We're going to be talking about if you fly, there's a plant extract that could save your life. Cannabis treats brain cancer with zero cytoactive effects. Why is it the government keeps telling us they're epidemics, throwing billions of dollars at it, when we looked at the statistics of what actually is killing people? You won't believe how few people are dying from the things they tell us are. How does green tea inhibit cholesterol? But it does. Scientists have cracked the code and a lot more on health and healing. We have no guests today. We set time aside for additional commentaries. I asked the audience, let me know what the issues are that you find important. You have to understand that the program has evolved over many years. And at one time, probably, oh, 80% of my audience were conservative and orthodox Jews living in the area, listening on WMCA. And then it evolved as the topics were broadened out always with health and nutrition, but also environment, human nature, investigative reports on social issues, and hard-hitting guests. So today, the average person listening is a 34-year-old woman, college-educated, interested in social issues, listening at home or at work. So we get a lot of feedback. So today, we're going to talk about a different look at the military occupation of Ferguson because I believe it's just the beginning of things to come, and I'll explain why. And to terrify and occupy how the excessive militarization of the police is turning our police force into counterinsurgents. Also, atrocities and the war on investigative journalism. John Kendall Hawkins of Counterpunch. Who owns the Federal Reserve? It's the most powerful institution in the world, far and away more powerful than the White House or Congress. What do you know about it? Professor Ellen Brown gives us an in-depth understanding of it. And when you hear all the things they're doing, you'll think, wow, how do they get away with that? Of course, throughout this program, I'll be taking your calls on any topic that you would like to share a question or insight or comment. Our number to call in is 888-874-4888, 888-874-4888. If for any reason you're traveling, you're on vacation, and you're not near a radio or the Internet, you can always listen over the telephone. Call this number to listen over the phone, 401 347 Three four seven zero four five six or seven one two four three two seven two three one seven one two four three two seven two three one. Now, why is that important? This past January, when one of our sister stations was having a fund drive, the program director 
decided that it would not be a good idea for me to explain to the audience when they'd be getting their premiums and why. And so I was simply taken off the air for two weeks, the last two weeks, the fun drive. I had nothing to say about it. Of course, I thought it was ridiculous, and it is, because I hadn't said anything. Well, the audience lost about 9,000 listeners, because for 12 straight days, when you turned on the show at that station, you couldn't hear anything, and they just played music. In today's world, the audience won't stick around. But what we did find, that the people who knew to have that phone number immediately started listening over the telephone or over the Internet. So now they're not listening to that station any longer. They're listening at another source. So if this ever happens at a station where you're listening, you'll know that I'm always on the air every day. All you have to do is dial one of those numbers, and you'll know where we're at. And for any reason... You don't know where we're, what's going on. Just call my main office number, and they'll inform you. That my main office number that you should all have is 646-926-5422. There is a difference between using the chemicals that are in cannabis, the oils, that are extremely beneficial versus smoking marijuana. And that's part of what has been a problem. On the one hand, I've had personal friends who became paranoid, delusional, and psychotic, who simply weren't able to function. And it wasn't temporary. It was long-term. And one of them almost died because they wouldn't eat, and they thought, you know, they were... They became very paranoid, had to go through a major detox at a psychiatric center just to get them where they could think reasonably. So on the one hand, understand that there is a consequence to the smoke. It is not harmless. But then you must understand it's very much like coffee. Drinking a cup of coffee is not the same as having the acid that is found in the coffee green coffee bean, which is beneficial. So you first have to distinguish what what you're actually doing. Then you start looking at the actual science, and the science is substantial. For example, what if you could actually improve or cure brain cancer, including rare types, without dangerous chemotherapy and radiation, and without any psychoactive effects, simply by using the most important Uh, cannabinoids from cannabis. And that has been done in laboratories to show that it reduces cancerous tumors, activate the cannabinoid receptors in the body, and produce important endocannabinoid, the brain's own disease fighters and mood boosters. Now, the cannabinoid receptors in the brain are responsible for regulating our mood, our appetite, and even our memory but they also help cells stay healthy. And the endocannabinoids are chemical compounds, according to natural society, which we already make ourselves, but are also boosted by the use of cannabis. It's a chemical compound that activates as the same receptors, delta-9-THC, the active component. 
So this was in the British Journal of Cancer, Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at a major university in Madrid, and published in also the Journal of Neuroscience. And then a separate study was published in the Journal of Pharmacology, and it found that the cannabinoids had a beneficial effect on human glioma cell lines. And finally, another study published in the journal Molecular Cancer Therapeutics, which pointed out how brain tumors can be can normally be very resistant to other cancer treatments, respond very positively to a dual therapy of cannabinoids and a particular drug. Researchers were able to demonstrate the reversal of tumor activity in the glioblastoma cancers. So on the one hand, there is good science showing that the chemical active ingredients, when purified and given for different cancers, are quite frankly, they're better than any chemotherapy out there. So that's good. For those of you who travel a lot, I'm on the road, headed back to the city, filming my way back. I'll be back in a week. But I fly also a lot. And there's always a problem with flying. It's called venous thromboembolism, or VTE. And what it is, is just a, it's a condition that can happen from flying. It's a blood clot, and it forms in a vein deep in the leg. That's why it's called deep vein thrombosis. And it could also form in a vein in the lung, which then becomes a pulmonary embolism. It causes about 50,000 people to die each year in the United States. And so what can we do? Well, there is something you can do in, that if you're going to fly, and I always recommend this. First, every two hours that you're on a plane, take 1,000 milligrams of buffered vitamin C. Also take 400 units of a natural vitamin E. But then take pycnogenol. Pick P-Y-C, Nodge, N-O-G, N-O-L, E-N-O-L, Pignogenol, is an extract from the maritime pine tree bark. And it's very rich in what are called pro-anthocyanidins. And those are found in cocoa and cinnamon and grapes. And it's extremely concentrated in pycnogenol. And here is just a study on it. Quote, Pycnogenol reduces the risk of deep vein clots, thrombosis. A study uh, on this showed that 100 milligrams, two to three hours before flights, two capsules taken were taken six hours after the flight, and one capsule taken the next day administered subjects on flights on average eight hours and 15 minutes result in zero deep vein thrombosis events. And that's good. And including phlebitis, which is an inflammation of the vein, usually in the legs. So if you're flying, if you're a flight attendant, if you're a pilot, if you're going on a long trip, make sure that you take your pycnogenol, 100 milligrams, every three hours. It reduces ankle swelling, which is also important. 
And according to a study quote, after the uh, treatment, the edema score was increased only by 17.9% versus 58% in the control group. So you didn't have all the swelling. So if you just do what I'm suggesting, it can make an enormous difference. Also, it helps your immune system, and it helps protect you against radiation. Now, I'm sure you've seen all the the mention of how we must fund the polio epidemic and get all these vaccines to all these kids in South America and Africa, Far East Asia, to prevent polio. Well, first, there's no science to support that. But secondly, then I looked at statistics, and I re-looked. And then I did another look, and here's what I found. The number one cause of death worldwide every year is ischemic heart disease. Seven million people die. Real close, stroke, 6.2 million. Then respiratory infections. 3.2 million. And other complications of the lungs, 3 million. Diarrheal diseases, that's very common because of polluted water, 1.9 million. Which is also, by the way, one of the reasons that animals live almost twice as long in captivity as they do in the wild. Now, ideally, they should live in the wilds. But I found it of interest that when um, those creatures that have to have communal water, uh, let's say there's a, only a, a waterbed or a pond, and it's always turgid, it's always dirty. Um, hippos are in it or alligators or any kind of creature that goes there. Their body has to process all the parasites that are in there. And these parasites play havoc with your liver, your kidneys, your heart. And then you start looking at sometimes an animal is eating meat that is old, It's already putrefied. A lion in the wild will generally live anywhere from... A lioness generally lives about 20% longer because they hunt in prides and they have a longer lifespan. The male lion dies earlier because once they no longer can maintain control on the pride, they are cast out and they can't hunt. They They have to look for carrion, some form of dead carcass to eat on. So they generally live about 10 years. Sometimes they'll get as old as 12. You start looking at cheetahs, panthers, bobcats, mountain lions, wildcats, leopards. They don't have long lives, very short lives. Now, then you look at what happens when they're put into captivity. And again, I'm opposed to that. But let's say there's a rescue and they have clean water and they have abundant food, a lion can live 25, even 30 years, sometimes tripling the lifespan. And uh, the smaller cats also double their lifespan. So water is the answer, whether we're drinking clean water or the animals are drinking clean water. And it also goes for your dog and cat. People frequently don't think about the quality of the water. Your dog or cat should drink the same quality, either mineral water or filtered water that that you do. Because a human in an animal's body is generally anywhere from 70 to 74% water. So you want it to be clean. 
And by the way, when I travel in Europe, I'm amazed at how old in the country, not in the city, not in the suburbs, but in the country, especially in Spain and in uh, Italy, I've seen dogs that are over 25. I've seen cats that are over 30. In part because they don't feed them cooked foods. They don't feed them off the table. They, uh, they let the cats hunt wild and they'll eat rats and other things that are living, meaning they've got enzymes. And the cooking process denatures the enzymes and also creates cancer-causing agents like heterocyclic amines. Very important that uh, they have more raw food and they have enzyme-rich food. Anyhow, uh, so that's one of the reasons we have 1.9 million people dying because we should be putting wells into all these villages and septic systems so that when people are needing water, they have clean water. And you've got to test well water because you want to make sure you don't get arsenic into it, which is also possible. But you go down, you can get an aquifer. You, then you've got water for a whole village forever. And wells are not expensive. You could put a well in most places for under... Under $10,000 per whole village. And that way they have clean water. And that's your major wealth. And off that, you, you can take it to different people's homes. That's how we should be supporting these people. You know, infectious diseases, 1.6. Uh, different uh, diabetes conditions, 1.4 million. Road injuries, 1.3 million. Premature death, uh, 1.2 million. And polio, 415 cases. What? 415 cases? Yes. Thus far this year, 74 cases worldwide. And 59 of those cases are in Pakistan. So you're going to spend billions of dollars creating vaccines for an epidemic that does not exist? This is from Health Impact News. Quote, compared to all other diseases occurring around the world, this is something new that qualifies as an epidemic here. In August 2014, no, it doesn't. So why did the World Health Organization put out such a frightful press release this week, which was promptly broadcast by all the major mainstream media outlets, UNICEF, which partners with the World Health Organization for global vaccine purchases and distribution, is one of the largest purchasers of vaccines for worldwide distribution. Last year, for example, they purchased 1.7 billion doses of the live world polio vaccine to administer to children under age of five. Why such huge numbers? Because they leveraged two huge humanitarian crises to justify such large purchases the Syrian refugee crisis, and the Philippine typhoon crisis. So is there an absence of humanitarian crisis here so far that has resulted in sales of the live oral polio vaccine? No. Unfortunately, history shows us that without government intervention to create epidemics and government intervention to collect tax revenues and purchase vaccines that would never make it into the free market, the vaccine market would never survive. 
We have seen this historically in the United States, where the vaccine market has even more government-sponsored protection with legal immunity against harm caused by vaccines. With such recent government-appointed epidemics as the bird flu and the swine flu scares of recent years, these government-announced pandemics greatly increased vaccine purchases, but the outbreaks never materialized because the threats were never real to begin with. The real tragedy with the live oral polio vaccines is that they can cause the very thing they are supposed to be preventing. They can cause polio. Both the vaccine-associated paralytic poliomyelitis and the non-polio acute flaccid paralysis are known side effects of the live oral polio vaccine. It sheds the virus from the vaccine through feces and into sewers and sanitation systems and in India, it recently achieved its polio-free status, but at the cost of tens of thousands of non-polio acute flaccid paralysis cases each year caused by the vaccine. In fact, 53 cases of paralysis last year from the vaccine. 453 died, or excuse me, contra- uh, yes, died from polio, but 53,000 died from the vaccine. Let me see. 453 versus 53,000 deaths. The oral polio vaccine is so easy to administer, even non-doctors can give it. And Bill Gates administering the oral polio vaccine is foundation. This dangerous vaccine is no longer used in developed countries like the U.S., but it is mandated, purchased, and distributed in poor countries. Vaccination record-keeping can often be suspect in many places, and the vaccine is so easy to administer that it can be given to children right on the streets, even without bothering to find out if the child has already been vaccinated. So that's what the public does not know and should. So what can we do instead? Well, why don't we clean up the mess that's in these cities, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in India, in Africa, if you gave good, clean food and water, and if you had a good sanitation system, you wouldn't have polio epidemics at all. That's what I would suggest. How does green tea inhibit cholesterol? Well, researchers at China's Sun Yat-sen University have discovered one of the mechanisms by which green tea helps lower cholesterol and that's a good thing. They discovered two chemicals in there. They looked at 14 randomized controlled trials published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition found that people who consume more green tea had significantly lower LDL, that's a bad cholesterol, and lower total cholesterol. So most people think it was the polyphenolic compounds found in green tea many of which have been shown to either dis- disrupt the body's synthesis of cholesterol and reduce the cholesterol. And uh, what we found is that T-polyphenols bind to cholesterol precursors. And there are a group of chemicals called ketichins. And that's a good thing. So take your green tea and lower your cholesterol in a natural, non-toxic way. And finally... Start sprouting and receive up to 900% more nutrition from your food. That's right. Sunflower, fenugreek, 
daikon, mustard, radish. Uh, uh, very good would be uh, alfalfa. All of these sprouts are very rich in vitamin C. Just three-day germinated broccoli sprouts can contain as much as 50 times the amount of poly, uh, phytonutrients as eating a full mature broccoli spear. And sprouting and then eating alfalfa grains means that you'll be consuming more chlorophyll than if you ate full spinach, kale, cabbage, or parsley. So they're rich in vitamin C, B1, B2, B3, vitamin A, potassium, calcium. So start eating sprouts. Make a big difference. And finally... Harvard's meta-analysis shows that more magnesium slashes heart risk by 30%. And uh, previous studies in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition found that, that for every 50 milligram per day increase in intake of magnesium, the risk of cancer was reduced by 7%. That's per 50 milligrams. So if one day you have 50 and then the next day you have 100 you've slashed it by 70%. Then you go to 150, 200, 250. So you could slash it substantially. There was one study of 4,600 Americans found the risk of developing metabolic syndrome over the next 15 years was 31% lower for those with the highest intake of magnesium. So that's important. So if you want to slash your risk of cancer, heart disease, and osteoporosis, and lower blood pressure, and help you treat diabetes, all of that magnesium can do. I'm Gary Nall. That's our health and nutrition segment. We're going to come back and start taking your calls. The number to call in, 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. to the site and look at all the articles. We have more articles on progressive themes than any other website in the world. I just put up a hundred articles today, and for those who question, gee, is that you, Gary? I don't think it's Gary putting up these articles. Yes, it was. I was putting up those articles, putting up, I, I love to put up lyrical and, and insightful stories. I like to put up things about animals. I found really one that was terrific about um, uh, animals rescuing people and animals rescuing 
humans. There was one where a German shepherd, I think it was in Alaska, was ran for almost three miles down roads, all these turning roads where uh, a a guy was following the dog but didn't know why, just had, he said he had this intuition and got to where the uh, dog lived and the house was on fire. I mean, just that the dog went looking for help. I put those things up because I'm always inspired by animals because I, I rescue animals and I see them. I see them do things that you just couldn't imagine, as many of you who have animals do, as companions, and the love they have. Also, the stories that inspire us, the stories that stop for a moment and allow us to think. So we have so many of those up there. And we've just put a brand new, original, in-depth investigative reporting piece up. You won't want to miss that. And uh, it's all about GMOs. It's called food fascists and what they're doing, how they're doing it, how they're getting away with it, what we can do to stop them. So go to blog.garynall.com, blog.garynall.com for all those articles. Let's say hello to Luann Panessi. Hi, Luann. Hello, Gary. I have uh, a very interesting email that I would love for you to address. Um, this is from Ingrid. Sounds like she might be from California. She says, uh, I'm a baby boomer like you, and I follow your advice. She says, I'm healthy. I look 25 to 30 years younger than my age. And recently on PBS, I've been seeing um, all these, uh, you know, you see the older people from the, the doo-wop era, and they're out there singing, they're doing their best to recreate these songs. He says, but I look at these old rockers and singers like Jerry Lee Lewis and Joni Mitchell and, and Lil Richard and others, and they all seem to look haggard and old, and they're all having these chronic health issues. So one of her questions is, can they actually be helped? And she said, I had a neighbor who is Hedy Lamar, and she says, and she was on Social Security, and she lived a very moderate lifestyle. And I heard you say that you befriended her. So my question really is, can people actually change? You know, we, we've seen recently the passing of James Garner and Mickey Rooney and Jonathan Winters and Sid Caesar. These were like one-time famous people, and they seem to just shrivel up and fall off the radar when they get old. And I, and I have to wonder, what were their lives actually like when they were out of the spotlight and just kind of shriveling up? You've asked about four questions within one, and I'll address each one. Yes, I was a friend of Hedy Lamar. In fact, I found her to be one of the most remarkably brilliant people I've ever met. Uh, she did not benefit from her unique insights, especially into computer software, while she was alive, but I believe her heirs did, and she invented, and is in use today, one of the most important aspects of the computer systems. She uh, she ended up retiring, living down in a just a nondescript small area in Florida, and passed there. And she was a she was a an extremely interesting person. Because she said, when she came to see me for something in health, and I'm only telling you this because she went public with it. If she hadn't gone public, I would never 
divulged and have not divulged any of the tens of thousands of people I've, um, I've counseled unless it's been in the news because they acknowledged it. In any case, uh, she got to see me because of her friend, who was Gloria Swanson, who was also a friend, and was very much into health. Now, both of them shared something in common. They both came from that era where everyone smoked, everyone drank. Um, you didn't exercise as much as you starved yourself to keep your figure, and you had a lot of people around you to make you look glamorous all the time. And a lot of people just ate you know, the regular meat, potatoes, bread kind of diet. And then there was a very famous person named Gaylord Hauser, who was the nutritionist to the stars back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. I knew Gaylord. Uh, I was very young, just getting into the field. He was very old, uh, out just out of the field, and he still kept in contact with many of the people he had been helped. But he didn't do all of it. The people who were doing all of it were called the natural hygienists. And the natural hygienists were the ones who had you exercising, including doing what was called air breathing, where you would get uh, either naked or in some shorts and you go outside and you do a series of exercise. You wanted to expose your whole body. They thought it was very unhealthy to live around highly, um, highly heated environments. So uh, they would go from a hot sauna, jump outside into a cold pool, and they would give you juices and herbal infusions all day long, including little glasses, two to three ounce glasses of bitters, all day long. And they still had some of those places at the beginning of my career. I went to one to see what it was about in, in Germany. And the one who was most popular in the United States was Bernard McFadden. And he was what was called a vitalist. And his wife, John Lee McFadden, she lived into her 90s, a wonderful person, and she took me one day up to see their old natural hygiene sanitarium up in Livingston Manor, New York. Overlooked the whole valley. It was a, it was a little tiny rundown place then, but back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, it was a thriving, all across America, you had thriving natural hygiene environments. So I'm amazed that no one's ever done a movie or anything on this. And the most famous person, the one who led the whole health movement, was Bernard McFadden. He was the most famous health advocate of his time, and he followed a man named Kellogg of Kellogg's Cereal, who was also a vitalist. And one built off the other, and then then the others came after him. None of them were vitalists. Adele Davis was not a vitalist. Carlton Fredericks sure as hell wasn't. He advocated everything that caused death and disease, in my opinion. I did not care for that man. Um, and uh, and everybody was either into high protein in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but none of these people were the vitalists. The vitalists were from the late 1800s to about 1960. And in that is where a lot of your celebrities who then were no longer in movies and then started to see how they were aging, then they got interested in being more into health. And that's what Gloria Swanson told me and Haley Lamar. And so by that time, I was in well into anti-aging, and I'd take them over to the Institute and show them what I was doing, and they were always fascinated. I'd say, here's, um, here's 
what happens when you increase the amount of vitamin C. Here's what happens when you get it intravenous and look at the charts. And they, they just couldn't imagine all this stuff wasn't popular knowledge. Gloria Swanson said, Gary, this should be in the newspaper. I said, they're not ready for this. You may be ready for it, but they're not ready for it. You start putting that vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C at 50, 75, 100,000 milligrams can help reverse disease. They'll think that you're uh, a nut job and they won't take it seriously. Not until they can control it and they profit from it, then it becomes officially sanctioned or acceptable. In any case, I was once counseling a very famous classical actor and he was detoxing and I was detoxing him upstate at my farm in Stone Ridge and it was a warm late spring day and it was lightly raining outside and he was in the barn sitting on a bale of hay and around him were all these animals who didn't like being in the rain like goats hate being in the rain and a little heifer and a horse and it was just quiet and I was looking for him I walked over and there he was and he said, Gary, he said, this is just the most perfect, peaceful moment I can imagine. And I said to him, well, you could create this when you go home. He said, no, I can't. I said, sure you can. Just buy yourself a farm out in the valley. You could do this. Joel McRae did. Randolph Scott did. You could do it. He said, no, here's what you don't understand about being a celebrity or being famous. People expect you to always be a certain way. They want to see you at your best. They want to see you always glamorous. And because I play classical figures and I'm in serious dramas, at any given time, at any social event, they expect me to sound like I do in the movies, not realizing those are all the words coming from an Academy Award-winning writer. And I look a certain way because of the director and the makeup people. And it's all acting. But what do you think happens when I'm not in a film? I have the same identical day as anybody else. My day is no different. And how do you think famous people really look in Hollywood day to day when they're not getting made up for three or four hours? They look like anyone else. More often than not, you're not even noticed when you go out. And he said, so the danger of becoming famous is you then have to live a life that the public expect. And if not, then, you know, then you don't have that popularity. And I thought, well, that's unfortunate. I mean, can't you just be yourself? And he said, my real self would be boorish. And, uh, and I, you know, so I live the lie. That's what he told me. He and his wife, who was very famous also. So to answer the other part of your question, the worst thing we can do in life is take our success seriously. Whether you're a painter, sculptor, dancer, artist, anything you do, even a business person. Because the moment you take your success seriously, that becomes your addiction. And no longer do you maintain balance. You don't have a balance in your relationship with people because more often than not, you're now going to be associating with other people who are equally or more or less successful. 
you're not going to see the quiet, the soft, the slow, the natural of anything. Your life becomes hyperkinetically stressed because you're always thinking. You're always having to be one step ahead. If you have a best-selling book, you're meeting with your agent. And how do we how do we do this? Do we do the same book over again, just with a different title and a different? What do we have to do? And what if the second book isn't successful? And the trouble is the people took the money from the first book and they went out and they just started to binge. They started to buy things. They upgraded their lifestyle because now they had some success. And everybody feeds that success. And then you start getting people around you who don't see you as a person, a human being, a sacred soul. They see you as an object, a commodity to which they can be somewhat more or less parasitic. They want some piece of that, and they're willing to lie to you, to tell you that how good you are and smart you are and brilliant you are, and suddenly you're no longer sitting listening. You're always talking because people defer to you. When you walk in a room, the deferment, as long as you're in style. The trouble is there's an expiration date to everything, and it creates enormous stress because your agent gets you a big book contract. Let's say you get $500,000 and you have a good selling book. Now the next book contract, he's, he or she's going to try to get you a million dollar advance. But the moment you start taking those big advances, you have to go on national tours. You have to, you have to be on the road two or three months a year. And you get burned out. And for what? It doesn't make any sense, but it does when you're the people who want to brag about having the new bestseller. And the downside of that is that you can't keep topping yourself. I was just having this discussion with someone I was filming last night about Lady Gaga. I believe that within the next two years, she will not have any music at all, and uh, she'll be broke, and she'll have some diehard fans but someone else will do something that's equally outrageous but in a different way and be a new face and she'll be forgotten and uh, because she made her money and her fame not on her unique talent but rather on exaggerating what is normal and so frequently when you're successful you're expected to exaggerate your normal self you're expected to live at a certain standard and in circumstances and act a certain way and behave a certain way and be seen in certain places and vacation certain places, own certain things that are not normal. We don't need them. But that's all the addiction. And you've got a lot of people wanting to stick, a, stick that success needle in your arm all simultaneously. And the moment you're not successful, all those people disappear. And they're on to someone else. So the day's going to come when, because she did not share her uh, authentic energy, not like Lena Horne, not like Ella Fitzgerald, not like Billie Holiday, not like Judy Garland, they didn't have to wear a meat dress to make a statement. <laughs> their voice was their statement. Frank Sinatra was still able to bring the house down when he couldn't even remember all the lyrics but he had the energy, and he was never afraid 
to be vulnerable enough to share it with his audience. I was in Madison Square Garden. He was in his 70s, and I thought, wow, you know, that is really something to see this. And that's why we go to see the doo-ops. We don't go to see them because we expect them to be, you know, looking great. More often than not, they are older and sicker. But they, they connected with us with their lyrics, their music at a time when it meant something to us. We never forgot it. It became one of those remarkable moments. And now we want to reconnect with them. And we, we accept that it's not going to be the same, and that's okay. But, but then you look at the people like Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and Connie Francis, some of these people, they did some really original and, and really fun music. I just wish that they would have made better choices like Elvis. I believe that Elvis Presley, if he were alive today, would still be knocking out hits. Oh, I believe it. Because he had the charisma. Even when he was bloated and fat and, uh, and was, couldn't catch his breath, especially in that last concert a few weeks before he died where he was doing Unchained Melody, um, he still connected with his audience. It was like he was your friend. And when people connect at the heart level with us, we never forget it. We're not just someone who paid a ticket to see a performance. We're a person who's come to honor our friend. And that's what, that what's, that's, that's what causes us to love a John Wayne. Forget his politics. He was a, he was a really <laughs> engaging character. You, you know, he didn't act as much as he presented his real self in films. You know, Spencer Tracy was the same way. Cary Grant was the same way. People love Cary Grant. No one today, even young people, don't even know who Cary Grant or, or Catherine Hepburn are. Uh, they don't know who these people are because they don't know history. In fact, they don't know anything. Uh, they're clueless. And on, on so many topics that so many of us were fortunate enough to have some exposure to. But these people were, were our friends. And when you... When you allow a person to feel that kind of love, they don't fear creating. So they just keep creating. Elvis did that in his career. And I'm sure Michael Jackson would have con continued. I'm sure the Beatles would have continued. I'm sure many people have continued would have had their lives not been cut short. But those were cut short by the poor choices, and the poor choices were caused by people manipulating their success, using it. And then the person lost a sense of who they were and what was really important. Because what's really important is not that you are best-selling or a Broadway star or opening with a you know, $30 million gross at the box office. It's whether or not you have appreciated the gifts that you have and been able to share them in a wholesome way with other people. And then people remember you for how you touched them. And that's why we still enjoy some of those old acts, why we enjoy their music. I'd love to see a tour of, uh, of some of the original performers or the original musicians that are still alive uh, out in Detroit who wrote all those great hits 
for Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye, and they're the ones who actually created them. Their names weren't on the record, but without them, none of those hits would have occurred. And uh, I'd love to see them get together and do a concert of all the hits that they made. If anyone's in Detroit, let them know. Reach out to uh, the individuals. And what were their names? There was recently a special with Liberace on public television. He was someone else who... He looked into the eyes of his audience, and he he played. He was so gifted. The guy just does magic when he's on stage. And I remember seeing him weeks before he passed away at Radio City. And he was still up there, and he was still performing, and he was still connecting, and people were still in awe of this man's talent. I saw him at the same time at Radio City. Um, you were probably three rows away from me. What do I know? I didn't know you then. And, and I mean, he came out in the strangest outfits. He was yes. so over the top. <laughs> but what I liked about the man was his charm. Yes. He was so into the audience. And the audience and him, there was just a wave of energy going back and forth. Yes. And then you ask, well, who are the acts that last? Who are the people that have a long, uh, long time in the public spotlight? Those who are vulnerable. Those who... Those who let us in, those who uh, did the best they could with what they had over that period of time, not the narcissist, not the megalomaniacs, uh, those people we may find, you know, some of them were good at what they did, but it was as if they were playing in front of a mirror for themselves. So, you know, you're not connected to it. Well, yeah, you look at the Miley Cyruses and the Justin Bieber's. These people are just self-consumed. No, you look at them. I have no intention. No, I, <laughs> just, uh-uh, I not them. me, uh-uh. <laughs> okay, well, thank <laughs> you, Luann. appreciate you calling. By the way, Luann, thank you. Thank you I'll much. share this with you because you would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Checking out at the store, a young cashier suggested to the much older lady that she should bring her own grocery bags because plastic bags are not good for the environment. Okay. The woman apologized to the young girl and explained, We didn't have these green things back in my earlier days. So the young clerk responded, That's our problem today. Your generation did not care enough to save our environment for future generations. The older later said, You're right. Our generation didn't have the green thing in its day. But... We return milk bottles, we return soda bottles, and we return beer bottles to the store. The store sent them back to the plant to be washed and sterilized and refilled so it could use the same bottles over and over. So they really were recycled. But we didn't have the green thing back in our day. And grocery stores bagged our groceries in brown paper bags that we reused for numerous things. Most memorable besides household garbage bags was the use of the brown bag as book covers for our school books. This was to ensure that public property, the books provided for our use by the school, was not defaced by our scribblings. Then we were able to personalize our books on the brown paper bags. But too bad we didn't do the green thing back then. We walked upstairs because we didn't have an escalator in every store and office building. We walked to the grocery store and didn't climb into a 300 horsepower machine every time we had to go two blocks. But you're right, we didn't have the green thing in our day. 
and back then we washed the baby's diapers because we didn't have the throwaway kind. We dried clothes on a line, not in an energy-gobbling machine burning up 220 volts. When in solar power really did dry clothes back in our early days, kids got hand-me-down clothes from their brothers and sisters, not always brand new clothing. But you're right, young lady, we didn't have the green thing back in our day. Back then we had one TV or radio in the house, not a TV in every room, and the TV had a small screen the size of a handkerchief, not a screen the size of the state of Montana. And in the kitchen we blended and stirred by hand because we didn't have electric machines to do everything for us. When we packaged a fragile item to send in the mail, we used wadded-up old newspapers to cushion it, not styrofoam or plastic bubble wrap. Back then, we didn't fire up an engine and burn gasoline just to cut the lawn. We used a push mower that ran on human power. We exercised by working so we didn't need to go to a health club to run on treadmills that operate on electricity. But you're right, we didn't have the green thing back then. We drank from a fountain when we were thirsty instead of using a cup or a plastic bottle every time we had to drink water. We refilled writing pens with ink instead of buying a new pen, and we replaced the razor blade in a razor instead of throwing away the whole razor just because the blade got dull. But you're right, we didn't have the green thing back then. Back then, people took the streetcar or bus, and kids rode their bikes to school or walked instead of turning their moms into 24-hour taxi service and the family's $45,000 SUV or van, which cost what a whole house did before the green thing. We had one electric outlet in a room, not an entire bank of sockets to power a dozen appliances, and we didn't need a computerized gadget to receive a single beam from satellite 23,000 miles out in space in order to find the nearest burger joint. But isn't it sad the current generation laments of how wasteful we old folks were just because we didn't have the green thing back then? And so it goes. Thanks for being on, Luann. That was great. I'm Gary Nall. We're out of time. I'll get to the other issues on our next program. Thank you all for listening. Look forward to sharing more tomorrow. Have a nice day. Ah!